Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Keep your Bibles open here at Zechariah chapter number 2 and turn over to two of the Psalms, if you will, with me. We'll go to Psalm 137 and one of the uh, songs of degrees, one we memorized not long ago actually as well, uh, Psalm 122. <clears throat> So we're going to continue on our study this evening of some of the visions of Zechariah. And really we have a question that we could begin and it really labels this entire chapter. And the question is, does God care about Jerusalem? Now you think for a moment. When you think of Jerusalem, you could think of a city. But when you think of Jerusalem, you could think of about inhabitants. And of course, today, if you thought about Jerusalem, you would think about the four quarters that in 1948 and later in 67 was ratified and, and they divided Jerusalem among four quarters. Uh, you've got a Muslim quarter and you've got a Jewish quarter and a Christian quarter and a median quarter. And uh, kind of they have a little bit of autonomy between them as well. You think of Jerusalem, you think about the Temple Mount. In fact, you think about the various gates of the old walls that surround that city. Uh, when you think of Jerusalem, you think about really a city of antiquity. Uh, literally the very ground upon which Jerusalem sits uh, has been continuously ha inhabited, uh, historians believe, for nearly 5,000 years. I challenge you to find another city that old. It is a city of antiquity and continuously inhabited for such an extensive period of time. It's never really been a city of much size when compared to some of the other cities of antiquities and some of the current present cities that we have today. You think about Rome and her fair size that she had back during her uh, former years as the center of the empire of Rome with the Pax Ramona. Uh, you think of Beijing today or Tokyo or, or uh, New York City and you think about the masses of inhabitants are in theirs. Jerusalem's never compared to any of those cities in that type of habitation. She has never been at the center of world government. Uh, that I know of, there's never been a massive world summit that was gathered where Jerusalem was the centerpiece of that. Uh, you'll hear from time to time about all the world leaders meeting uh, in, uh, in various capitals across Europe, or they'll meet in New York City and various places like that to discuss great events that must come, or finances, or uh, the World Health Organization, or things of that nature. But you don't really ever hear that being held in Jerusalem. Though she's such an ancient city, she's a city that even by ancient standards was a small city. In fact, we'll look at this in a moment. Uh, by the time David takes Salem, the city of Salem, the stronghold of the Jebusites, as is mentioned in 2 Samuel, the reality is her population was probably only around 2,000 people. And during the balance of David's life, it likely never ascended much more than 10,000 people. It wouldn't be till the end of Solomon's rule by which you would hear of it being of any place of renown. And then after Solomon's rule, clean into the time that it is taken by Nebuchadnezzar, it even then waned in its ability to be compared to cities like Nineveh and Babylon. Really, in the historic view of things, Jerusalem's a know-nothing town. It seems at every chance to be at the crossroads of every great civilization that had ever come in that region. As we look at it today and we find that Jerusalem is once again immersed in conflict in the headlines. And the question comes to this mind, does God care about Jerusalem? 
Is it just a matter that all the Christians were taken out and now that all remains is the ruins of what could have been? If that's the case, it seems incompatible with so many, so many scriptures in the Old Testament. Turn over, if you will, to the 137th Psalm. Hold your place here in, uh, in the scriptures and just turn over, if you will, to the 137th Psalm. This is one of those, many believe, an exilic psalm. And I'm not going to read all of it, but just a couple of portions. 137th Psalm, by the rivers of Babylon we set down. Hence is why they think it's exilic. It reminds you a little bit of, of Ezekiel by the river Chedar over that's against uh, Babylon. He said, by the rivers of Babylon we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that, we, uh, that wasted us required of us mirth, saying us, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against a stone. Uh, if you'll note in your heading of this passage, it's left blank. Some believe that it was written perhaps by Ezekiel. The language seems very similar to what you know about the history and the time frame of Ezekiel the prophet who was carried away in a Babylonian captivity. Uh, but when you think of this, you'll note a man whose heart is captivated by the joys and the promises that were given to Zion. You hold your place there in Zechariah, turn over to the 122nd Psalm. This is one of those songs of the Greece. In fact, in my estimation, uh, there in the 103rd Psalm, 137th Psalm, when they're saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion, I think he's referring, at least in some part, to the songs of the Greece. And they would sing them going up unto the Temple Mount, up into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is always a city that is captivated individuals, uh, the Patrons, the, uh, the believers that would go into Jerusalem always referred to it as going up into Jerusalem. It's an elevation of about 3,000 feet above sea level. And so with all of the valleys, like the Valley of Jezreel to the north or the Valley of Hinnom to the south, uh, all of those valleys surrounding it were sometimes havens. But if you wanted to go to Zion, you had to arise and ascend approximately uh, a half a mile or better above uh, the sea level. And as they would ascend, often these are thought to be some of the songs they would sing, these songs of degrees. Draw your eyes to the 122nd Psalm. He says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. This is one of those degrees, those songs of David. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compacted together. Whether the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. For there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray, he says, for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. That's a good passage to remember. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sake will I now say, peace be within thee. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek 
thy good. These passages aren't by themselves. We could think of Psalm 48 and verse 2 and 3. I, the scripture records, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king, God is known in her palaces, a refuge, a refuge he would pen. The 132nd Psalm, the 13th verse, for the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. Now you want to know how close to the heart of individuals, particularly these Old Testament Jews, was Jerusalem. You could look no further than Nehemiah chapter 1. In Nehemiah chapter 1, this cupbearer, so moved as he finds that the remnant that had returned under Zerubbabel and Joshua uh, and had seen the rebuilding of the temple, that, that there's no walls at all. It's, it's broken down. It's desolate. Uh, the people are not even motivated to move into the inhabitants, uh, into the habitation of Jerusalem. And upon hearing these afflictions and the reproach of the wall of Jerusalem, Nehemiah was struck deep in his soul. It's an ancient city. In fact, if you wanted a little narration, the first time that you'll find it referenced is likely found in Genesis chapter 14. After the battle of the kings, when uh, Abraham took up his trained servants and went to liberate Lot, his nephew, uh, from the kings that had invaded and taken Sodom and Gomorrah, Nebuchadnezzar, or, or, or rather uh, Abraham, defeats them and, and uh, takes not even a golden shoe latchet from them. But yet he turns of all of his wealth that he has and he pays tithes to Melchizedek. And the scripture records him as the king of Salem, the king of peace present there. We read more about Melchizedek, this shadowy figure of the Old Testament, as we come into the book of Hebrews. It's found next in Joshua chapter 10. In Joshua chapter 10, as they have approached past Jordan and they've entered into the land and they have defeated Jericho and they've been defeated and then defeated Ai and they've moved on and began their invasion of the land that God has given them and being victorious in those lands, you'll find in Joshua chapter 10 uh, that uh, uh, Jerusalem is referred to as a Canaanite stronghold that was allied with Egypt. A few chapters later in chapter 15, when they're dividing up all of the land of, the, of uh, Israel and they're beginning to divide it up to the proportion of the, of the uh, tribes, Joshua chapter 15 and verse 8, it was given to the tribe of Judah. This was about 1,400 years before Luke chapter 2, when Mary went with Joseph, her espoused husband, into Bethlehem to pay taxes. It would be 400 years, uh, 400 years removed from the book of Joshua until David would take it. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6 through 10, he takes this Jebusite stronghold and he takes it. And once he has taken it and been victorious over it, it's named after him. And from that time since, we refer to it as the city of David. It becomes the city of David. And he builds their Milo around it. He builds something of a gate around it and a presence. Some 2,000 inhabitants present. In 1 Kings chapter 5 through 6, Solomon is the one that expands it and does so with the addition of a great and wonderful temple. And then in 957 B.C. when that temple was built, it would stand for nearly 400 years until it would be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Some 70 years later, in 516, it's the same time frame that Zechariah is. 
previous to 720 or 520, the temple had been began. It takes them four years. After they had a layoff of nearly 12 years or so before that, they began, re, uh, re began I should say, began again, uh, the building of the temple in five uh, 520 B.C., and it takes them four years, 516, that they rebuild. And that's a time frame here of Zechariah. I want you to know something interesting. It will be another 75 years before Nehemiah comes and builds a wall. Doesn't that sound funny to you? Pragmatically speaking, if you were building a temple and a wall, which one would you build first? A wall to defend it or a temple that was going to hold your most precious things? The temple that would have and come and hold all of your chargers and your candlesticks and your plates and your gold? Or would you build a wall first? That's the whole context of what is going on here in Haggai and Zechariah. In fact, in so much in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 2, even what little of the remnant is present are not terribly excited about building a temple. It's not the time, they would say. It's not the time to do so. And really from the time that Nehemiah would build back the walls around 445 B.C., some 75 years after Zechariah, give or take, Jerusalem would continue really to be just a shell of her former self. She'd manage through Agrippa and Herod to extend the, the, the walls of the city. She'd see another temple, this temple of Zechariah's time built, and it would stand until it's destroyed in 70 A.D. The little bit that was left of Jerusalem would remain until 135 A.D. when Hadrian would destroy it. And it would continue even to this day being under the control at various times of various kingdoms like the Romans or the Turks or the Arabs or at various and fleeting times various Christians until it begins to take its shape as it currently is under the state of Israel. But remarkably, unlike the cities of ancient that have come and gone, this city has stayed. Zechariah is prophesying not only that it will stay, but that it will continue to stay until while it yet stands the last battle of human history will be fought. And it will be fought just to the northern gates of that fair city in the valley of Megiddo. She'll continue. That's the whole theme of Zechariah. The perpetuity of Jerusalem because of God's divine choice. I think of what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 66. He says, Rejoice ye with Jerusalem and be glad with her all ye that love her, rejoice for joy with her. All ye that mourn for her. He goes on in chapter 1 and verse 26. I will restore thy judges as at the first, thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. In chapter 62 and verse 1, Isaiah continues, For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And we can speak of chapter 4 in Ezekiel as well. But herein is that great vision that is given. Now before I go much further, as I have done all these studies, I have found helpful to look at some maps. And so I've brought with us tonight two maps. I want to give you a picture of what I'm trying to say. A lot of times when we think about Jerusalem and we think about it in times of antiquity, here's the point I'm driving home at. We think about a current Jerusalem. But I want to take you back. This map, can you, can you zoom in on that? There's a little button there to let you, yeah. This is the time 
really of, of David and I believe uh, at, towards the end of Solomon's reign. If you look at it, it's kind of a footprint. The dotted lines that move out in the big area, that was added really during the time of Herod and Agrippa. And that's kind of the borders of its presence. But if you look, the solid black line, you've got the temple and the royal palace and the temple mount, the Gion Springs and the citadel, the city of David. That dark black outline kind of looks like a, I don't know, a foot. That was Jerusalem in the time of David and Solomon. And when we flip to the next map, it's the walls that Nehemiah rebuilt. You can zoom in on that a little bit you'll notice a very similar outline. So at the time of Zechariah, the dotted line to the outside, that's the modern walls. That's where your uh, Muslim quarter and your Christian quarter and your Armenian quarter and, and all of that is. None of that was present during the time all the way to the end of the Old Testament. It's not present until you get Herod Agrippa and Herod the Great that expand the city to make it the size that it is now. You just kind of have that dark line. And there you see all those famous gates that were well documented in the book of Nehemiah, the sheep gate to the far north and the fish gate and the old gate. And you come all the way down to the watering gate and down at the very bottom there's a series of some eight gates. Nehemiah's wall, get this, Nehemiah's wall is two and a half miles in length. Meaning if you took this gate and you ran it out in a straight line, it's two and a half miles. I want you to consider that for a moment. Two, two and a half miles of wall. They built it in 52 days. The city of Harrisburg is a little bit bigger than two and a half miles long. To give you an idea of what Jerusalem is, when the Lord is giving this vision to Zephaniah, the vision that he's going to give him is far greater than any Jew could even possibly consider the description that God gives about uh, Jerusalem. This is a tiny little thing. At its center point between the water gate and the valley gate, it's less than nine-tenths of a mile. It's said by one commentator I was reading after that at, at most points in Jerusalem, in the old city, that's this black line, you could walk from one side to the other, from left to right, east to west, in about ten minutes. We have the idea to consider Jerusalem as today this massive city, the Great Walls, it's present. It's really in comparison even to antiquity. Not much to really think of. What has given it its surviving power? In fact, they'll tell you, archaeologists and historians will tell you today, some of the walls around the better part of Jerusalem, even that perforated line that goes out, some of the walls date back to the Jebusites. They date back to the times. They've been built on and rebuilt on, but the foundation of those walls go back that many years. I don't know that you'll find a city anywhere in the world that's been under greater duress in its existence than Jerusalem. The Egyptians have fought over it. The Assyrians fought over it. The Greeks fought over it. The Romans fought over it. The Turks fought over it. The Arabs have fought over it. The Jews have fought over it. Practically every people group at some time or another, of a world empire type thing, has found issue with Jerusalem. There is no reason in the historical account of why a little old tiny Jerusalem should have ever survived. So here it is. Zechariah is encouraging them to build a temple. You can see the temple marking there. Now zoom out for a second, brother. What's around it? 
not a wall, not a gate. It's surrounded by adversaries. It's surrounded by enemies. It's surrounded by pagans. It's surrounded by friends that really are not allied with the purpose that God has. In the previous chapter, in chapter number 1, in verse 20, Zechariah, in the first of his eight visions, uh, or really maybe the second of his eight visions, he begins to look at four carpenters, and we looked at that at length, and these are, I believe, the four nations here that have mended at times against Israel. I think it speaks in a prophetic sense. And that God would take of these four horns, rather, that represent those countries. And he has brought about his four carpenters. And these four carpenters have frayed these four kingdoms, all of which have risen their head at one time or another, according to chapter 1. And verse 15 went beyond what God wanted them to do. Why? Because God in his heart had a special place, not just for the inhabitants, for a hunk of real estate. You say, well, you mean the inhabitants. Well, I do think he cared for the inhabitants. But here's the problem. As you're going through this, they couldn't get people to live there. There's no walled city. Most of the people had gone to the south in the Valley of Hinnom. It was safer there. I had another map that I was going to bring, and it's a 3D map, and it builds out, and you can see how people would go to these valleys for safety or go to the mountains to safety because with no walls, Israel was an easy place I mean, Jerusalem was an easy place to conquer. Now, when you think of all that God is doing, when you as the prophet Zechariah begins to preach and to speak of the fact that God is building a temple, no doubt you'd have to wonder about how God is going to secure that temple. And so here in the third of these eight visions, it brings us into chapter 2. And these... Almost it seems in a continuous night, Zacharias said, I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and I beheld a man. The scripture doesn't give an indication on who this man is. It could be that he's the angel of the Lord. It could be that he's the ministry angel that is present with, uh, with Zachariah earlier. I know not who. But notice what's fantastic about this man. Look at his scriptures. It says he has a what? A measuring line. Now, if you want to know what a measuring line is, you can think about a measuring tape. Zechariah looks at this man with a measuring line in his hand, and in verse 2 says, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, Verse 4, he said unto him, Run, speak to the young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a town without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. Now this is completely strange to Zechariah. It's been over 70 years since there's been any walls around this area. It's been pillaged. It's been raised. Do you remember the 137th Psalm, those Moabites? Raise it. Raise it, burn it down, destroy all of it. She's just an utter shell of her former self. And God is going to have Zechariah deliver this message to the people, to the same people that had just stopped and paused and only recently restarted the building of the temple. And he said, I want you to prophesy concerning what I'm going to do concerning Jerusalem. I'm going to build it back 
in a fashion that even you, Zechariah, cannot comprehend. If you look in verse 1 and 2, you have the fact, the part of this vision where the Lord uh, seems to deem that it will be built back in an enlarged place. It's measured. It would have great dimensions. Yes, Solomon may have brought Jerusalem to her greatest point by this time. Yet by comparisons to the cities of the ancient, it was neither populous nor expansive. And though Nehemiah would come 70 years later and he would build these very black, darkened walls that we see on our map, her population was small and her walls were incomparable to the great walls of other cities. But here there would be a rebuilding. and There would be a measurement that the Almighty God would have. And it would be far superior to anything that any Jew would ever consider. He goes on in verse 3 and 4. He gives you a little detail about this eternal plan. He speaks of the fact in verse 3 and 4 that it would be inhabited as towns without walls. Without exception, anytime you find in the Old Testament a reference to a town without walls, it means one of two things. It means, number one, it's a tiny little village. People came and go. So there was no great significance militarily. It was of no great uh, consideration financially. It was just a small little village. The other essence by which you find of an unwalled city was one that was so mass and so large that no one in their right mind would dare come against it. Zechariah writes about the fact that he's measuring the proportions of Israel. He's not measuring it to build a wall. Nehemiah is going to come in a few years and he's going to bring some measuring rods with him. And he's going to measure. He's going to measure those walls. I think they'll be about 2.5 meters thick. And they'll be about 12 feet high. And the totality of the length will be 2.5 miles. There'll be a lot of measuring that they'll have to do to build it in 52 days. But here as Zechariah beheld this man... He is measuring it, and he said it's going to boom with a great population. And yet, he'll say later in uh, in verse number 5, he says, uh, For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. It's an eternal plan that God has. People will come from all over the world to be a part of that fair city. It will be the centerpiece, the diadem of all the world. I don't know what the diadem of all the world is today. Where is it, I would imagine, that people given a choice to live anywhere they want to live, what city would they live in? I don't think it'd be Harrisburg. I don't think that'd be the final destination everybody would choose. I was in Pittsburgh this past week and I had a great time. And uh, I don't think Pittsburgh, with all of its mystery and wonder, at least to me, would be the final destination of anybody. It might be of some here. I don't think it'd be Philadelphia. I know a lot of people, but it wouldn't be New York. Depending on what your fancies are, there'd be a lot of different choices that you might have. But in this day that the Lord's talking about where Jerusalem is rebuilt, this speaks of a future in which people will come from the far-flung corners of the world for one single purpose. You know what it is? To be an inhabitant of Jerusalem. Look, look if you will, here in these verses, in verse number 6. He says, oh, oh, come forth, flee from the land of the north. Now, Babylon's not due north. It's really more east of Jerusalem than it is north. It's seated really uh, at the, at the uh, uh, intersection of the Tigris and Euphrates River in the modern-day country of Iraq. It's way down in that corner. It's more east than north. You would say, well, that can't be the same Babylon, but it is. The reality is if you were ever going to attack Jerusalem, you had to come in from the north. 
South of Jerusalem is mountainous. South of Jerusalem is rocky plain. South of it, you get near the Dead Sea. South of it, that's where you had Masada, the, the winter palace of Herod the Great. Every kingdom that had come against Israel had always come from the north. That was the entryway. That was the necessity by which there is an expansion. That was the necessity why all the parapets and walls were later expanded to that realm. In fact, the road that ran from Egypt ran past Jerusalem and had its access point at the top to the north of Jerusalem. And here the Lord conveying in wondrous reality that He will be an everlasting protector of them. People will come from all over the world. A couple of weeks ago we read out of Isaiah 49 and in speaking of this, Isaiah highlights the fact that they'll come from all four corners of the world to be an inhabitant upon Israel. And I think you look at the eternal plan and the fact that God is going to be a protector. You don't see there just this being just some Jews that recently came out of a diaspora. I mean, I don't, there was not five million Jews in the diaspora at the time of Zechariah. Yet when you listen to the verbiage of this vision that Zechariah has, he talks about a multitude of men and cattle. No wall, but rather that they would have an everlasting protection. You wouldn't have to worry about refortifying the walls. You wouldn't have to worry about maintaining the walls. I have one of the things I'd like to do in my life is get down to San Antonio, Texas. I'd like to see the Alamo. But everybody that's ever been down there to see the Alamo tells me that I'm wasting my time. They say it's not really much to see. And in fact, I, if my understanding is correct, it's not even the original. It's a replica that is present. There's very little original left. Uh, I saw a documentary some time ago that has intrigued me. Uh, this lady is present and it was uh, uh, televised and so these, uh, these news reporters come in and she is one of the most important, er this lady at that time is one of the most important ladies. She had this, well to be honest, it was like a sonogram machine and it had a probe in it and she would go and she would probe the walls and they asked her, so what are you doing? She said, these walls are considerably old walls dating back pre-1836, you know, they're almost 200 years old. And she says, just slight tremors in the earth can disrupt them. And she said, my job is to go in there and randomly test around the old original walls to make sure that they are sound and secure and to computer, through the computer, to document any areas that they're fragile so that we can repair them with hairline fractures. We can repair them before they break down. That's how fragile these walls are. Well, I tell you, I, I wouldn't want to be behind those walls if they were shooting at me today, if they're that fragile. But in this future of Jerusalem, they won't need to worry about a sonogram machine that will test how strong the walls are. There'll be no siege that could be laid that would have a rampart in which enemy soldiers could build that would reach the very height so that they could come over. There'll be no battering ram that will be able to knock down those walls. Why? Because they will have an everlasting protector. God would be the divine protector. He said, I will be unto her a wall of fire round about. Doesn't that remind you of the imagery of the Old Testament? God leading his children by day with a pillar of what? A fire. God would dwell with them. He would be present. He would be their deliverer. He would be their protector. He goes on in verses 6 and 7 and he talks about elated people. Israel being delivered from her presence, enemies. He speaks really in one sense, Babylon in verse number 7, that's a proper reference to some of the current of Zechariah's times, enemies. And of these elevated persons, Israel's delivered from all her enemies. Her enemies would be judged, these enemies to the land of the north. 
All those that had taken of Jerusalem, all those that had sought to spoil her, they'll one day be conquered. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom was conquered. Those of the kingdom of the Medo and Purge were conquered. Yes, those of the Grecian Empire were conquered. Yes, those of the Roman Empire have conquered. Jerusalem is the place for an emperor to go only to be defeated. Verses 8 and 9, you find the enemies. The enemies are laid flat. The enemies are defeated. Notice, I like his phrase here in verse number 8. It says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me into the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you, toucheth what? The prize. That's an expressionary statement, the apple of the eye. In fact, if you look in your concordance, you'll find I think one of the first times it's mentioned is Deuteronomy 32. Some liken that apple to being the center point of the eye, like the pupil. It is, if you will, that which is most precious to the eye. That which is most easily injured to the eye. That which is most difficult to be repaired of the eye. That which demands the most care, the apple of the eye. Just as light enters the eye through the pupil, so light, in a sense of salvation, entered the world through the descendant of Judah and Jerusalem. When you think of the apple of the eye, you think of the eye and its level of protection because of its sensitiveness. You think of the protection, the frontal bones of the eye that prevent it from being damaged with blows. I think about young folks in particularly, but little boys maybe more specifically, getting injuries and black eyes and how that frontal bone protected that eye. The brow and the eyelash protect from dust. The eyelid from the glare of light. The tears giving it a continual cleaning. Just as God in a real sense gave a natural protection to your eye, so Israel being the apple of his eye will not and is not beyond the scope of his protection. I mean, you talk about the fact that there'll be enemies that are utterly destroyed. Anytime any civilization, any government, any people lift their hand against those things that God loves, beware. Notice something else here. Notice in verse 5 and 8. I want you to notice an interesting phrase. Two phrases. One he uses is the Lord of hosts. You'll see it several times. You'll see it in verse 11. You'll see it in verse number 9. You'll see it in the passage we just read, the Lord of hosts. That's a military reference to Jehovah God. The Hebrew word is Sabaoth, the Lord Almighty. It has the idea of the Almighty General, the Almighty God, the King of Kings. When God is speaking of Jerusalem and of her defense, He references His ability to go forth and be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But in clarity, I want you to listen to the words one more time as I read it. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me into the nations which spoiled you. I want to ask you a question. In verse number 8, who is the he that is being sent? Thus saith the Lord of hosts. That's a reference to God. After the glory hath he, the Lord of hosts, sent me. So who is the me? It's not Zechariah. Zechariah is seeing and beholding this, but it's said again in reference in verse number 9. 
Verse number 9, Ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. Not Zechariah. This me is one that's going to shake his hand upon the enemies. This is one that is going to spoil the servants. This is one that is going to revenge Jerusalem. It isn't Zechariah. Who's the me? I think the answer is found in Proverbs, isn't it? Chapter 30. He said, who is he that measured water in his hand? What is his name? What is thy, his son's name if thou canst tell? As New Testament believers, you know what we see here? You see Philippians chapter 2 highlighted. That Jesus Christ made himself of no reputation, but humbled himself, became obedient to the cross, even the death of the cross. This is Trinitarian incessance. This is Jesus Christ being sent by God the Father to do something very specific. Marvelous indeed. The apple of the eye is not just the apple of the eye of God the Father, but is the apple of the eye of Jesus Christ. And it must needs be the apple of the eye of Jesus Christ. For one day he will sit upon the throne of David. And where will his throne be resident? In Jerusalem. It will be his capital. He concludes in the last few verses with some simple, excellent praise. Notice, if you will, in verse 10. Marvelous. You think of Zechariah for a moment. Perhaps standing on some rock south, in the south portion of the land, looking at the valleys and behind him in a backdrop instead of beautiful decorations is a temple that's taken him too long to build with no walls around it and adversaries. And he's preaching, and then, don't you worry. One day I saw a vision. God gave me a vision. I saw this vision and there was one that went out with a measuring tape and he measured it and they're going to build it. When God rebuilds it, there's not even going to be walls. You won't need walls and he'll be our protector and, and we're going to just bust it to seams full of people and possessions. And he'll right all wrongs. My, if you're like the average Baptist Christian hearing that, you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. But this vision ends with some excellent praise. In verse number 10, you have a praise for God's presence. In verse 10, Sing, O rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, I will dwell in the midst of thee. If there's anything any believers of any age ought to readily give, give great praise to God for, it's the fact that we can commune He with us and us in Him. Zechariah moves to a second point of praise. He said, you'll be able to praise God because of who God's people are. Verse 11, many nations shall be joined unto the Lord in that day. Isn't that marvelous? Forget about a Muslim quarter and an Armenian quarter and a Christian quarter and a Jewish quarter. You'll have one city, Jerusalem. In the same geographic area that it is with an expansiveness and making it the centerpiece of all of world geopolitical desire. Everyone from every tribe and kindred would be present there. In verse number 12, he speaks of the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion. God will have his portion. God will have his throne. Oh, to be in the place where God truly rules and reigns. In the final verse, he speaks of rejoicing and giving praise because of God's wondrous power. Be silent, O flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy hill. Remind you of that 121st Psalms, he's a God that slumbers not nor sleeps.
you know, as you move down through these 13 verses, I think it's no doubt with singular reference to the present tense, but with greater reference to the future tense of a coming Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom. Yet what do we do with it? I'm not in the past Jerusalem. I'm not in the current Jerusalem. And the future of Jerusalem lies too far ahead to help me right now. So what does this mean? I think of a few things. I think there are lessons by which we can learn to apply to our life. I think I can learn the lesson as I look through Zechariah chapter 2 that God's purpose will not be undone by its enemies. Yes, there are many enemies to God's purpose. Sometimes they're enemies of a diabolical means. Sometimes they're enemies of a theological means. And sadly, sometimes some of those, some of those that have done greatest damage to the purpose of Christ are those that said they truly were his friends. You and I as believers, you see all the enemies on the horizon. You see those that hate God. You see those that hate the things that God loves. And our heart becomes weak and frail. Friend, this passage reminds us of this. God's purpose will not be undone. He will accomplish the thing whereunto he wishes to accomplish. I can rest in that. It is a powerful God. That if he's made a promise to me, he will fulfill it in his ability, in his time, and his power. Even if like Zechariah, I'm standing on the edge of a valley with a backdrop of ruin, I can still praise God for the potential fulfillment of his great promises. I think a second lesson here is this. This is applicable today as well. That one needs to give great care how they treat the things that God loves and uses. You know, too often, not unlike Jerusalem, people were dismissive with it. On Nebuchadnezzar, he took of all, well, go back before Nebuchadnezzar, look at the Philistines. Remember what happened when they took the Ark of the Covenant? Just strapped it on some milk kind and on a cart. And they decided they'd take the Ark of the Covenant and store it in Dagon's temple. And they'd worship it like they did that old half-fish god. What happened to them? God smote them with emeralds, boils. In so much so that they put it back on that cart, back with those milk kind, and set them loose with a tick, tick, get on your way, little kind of click, and sent them back to the children of Israel. Of course, it wasn't long when the children of Israel, some years later, began to transport it. They used heathen means to do a divine task. They forgot the same lesson. Be careful how you treat those things God loves. They had no business carrying that thing on the cart. Old fellow gave his very life for it. They should have carried it and cared for it like God said to. But it was good enough for the Philistines to do it. Why isn't it good enough for us? You come through the narrative of it. There Daniel's called to the great feast at the last days of the Babylonian kingdom and they're drinking out of the very vessels that had been dedicated to God. Well, that was a shortly ended party. And on and on it can go. A friend, more than just the things that God loves in reference to Zechariah, think by way of application forward. Be careful how you treat the things that God loves. Seems to me in Ephesians chapter 5, he said he loves the church and gave himself for it. 
Oh, be careful how you treat the assembly of believers. Be careful how you engage with it. Why? Because if anything means this, God is in fact consistent. He'll not stand by and see his things abused. And finally, I might mention this. God will punish those that do evil. Be not mocked, Galatians tells us. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Sow to the wind, and what shall you reap? The whirlwind. These were the promises. You know, the truth of the matter as it relates to this passage and with other passages dealing with the chasing hand of God is it comes in His good time and measure. A lot of times we can engage in a lifestyle or an action or a thought and we can think that God has just overlooked us and we go down the path and it seems as though God at the best and pointed time chastises His children. Be careful. Whether you're the child of God or the enemy of God, God will punish those that do evil. If you're the child of God, He has to. Because if you're the child of God, He loves you. And because He loves you, He chastens every one of them that veer from the truths of the Word of God. You think of Zechariah chapter 2. The prayer of Matthew comes to mind. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. When will all of this be brought to pass? When Jesus rules and reigns from his literal kingdom. You see, to Zechariah, whose name means the Lord remembers, God remembers his justice, but God remembers the apple of his eye, the thing he has chosen and the thing he loves. Friend, if God will remember old city of antiquity even to today, he'll remember you. He remembers those things he loves. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.